Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. We have hit the point. 2018 NBA draft here. So we've gone back. We've hit 2020, 2019 in our last episode. Now we're going back to the 2018 NBA draft class. And once again, we we keep thinning out the tiers a little bit. This time between tiers... One through three, I have 14 guys graded out in such tiers from the 2018 draft class. And then I have seven guys graded out into a tier four. So let's review one more time. When I'm going through these draft tiers, essentially tier one is who I would deem to be an MVP caliber player. Someone who is a no-brainer max guy, but also being in that MVP caliber tier, somebody who you view as a building block, a true building block to winning a title, being a guy who can take over late in playoff games and important moments and deliver you wins when they matter the most. That is what separates a tier one from a tier two player. A tier two player is more of that complementary level of high-end star. Again, also a max guy, but... Not quite the same as a tier one guy in terms of when everything's on the line, who are you going to for that last shot or to create that last shot? Who are you looking towards in the fourth quarters of these closeout games, these important playoff games? Who can really bring home a title for you? Those those tier two guys are not quite on that level. Then you get to the tier three guys who are... I define them as guaranteed one through four starters on a really good the championship level team so they can be a first option all the way down to a fourth option. Um, so, so that tier has a little bit more to play with in there. And then tier four are your players who they can be a, a, a collection of things. So usually this is like your your fifth guy in the starting lineup, somebody who you're not looking at as like the first or fourth option. He's good enough to be in that starting lineup, but he's he's the fifth guy in there, right? Where he could be your your sixth man, your first guy off the bench, again, still playing an important role, playing a lot of minutes within your rotation on the team. This can also be a spot starter category, very similar to being a sixth man, the first guy off the bench, somebody who you can bring into a starting lineup to you know, spot start for somebody who gets injured or is out of the starting rotation, you can count on that guy to essentially up his role and bring positive contributions to a really good championship-level team. And then you throw your specialists in this category as well, guys who don't have a very diverse skill set, but they're also really, really good at that one or maybe two skills that they do have. They're exceptional in a role. And that's how they fit into this category. They're so good within their role that they warrant having a legitimate spot in your rotation. You're not looking at them in like the seventh through ninth man category, which would be a tier five as when you're getting into the playoffs, when you're in those important games, you're shortening your rotation. Anybody in a tier four, you would expect them to definitely make the cut regardless of whether they're they're playing on the bench or maybe they are even that last guy in the starting lineup. You're like guaranteeing that tiers one through four have NBA players in there who will at some point in their careers play prominent roles 
in a rotation for a really good the championship level team. That's how I'm projecting their upside. And speaking of using the word projection, there's not as much projection this time around as the other two. Now, now we're talking about guys who have three years under their belt. We're talking about them going into their fourth year. These are guys who are going to be looking for extensions that they hadn't gotten them. They haven't gotten them already. So we have a lot more film on these guys. We have more statistical, proven statistical evidence on these guys. So this is a lot more cut and dry. Again, technically still projecting out because anything can happen in their careers. Anybody can take a leap when we least expect it. But in terms of it being a little bit easier to see where these guys' careers are headed, what they've already achieved and what they're likely to achieve, that gets a little bit easier as we, we keep going back a year or two. So 2018, Tier 1, two guys I have in this category. Some people might only say that one guy deserves to be here, not necessarily two, but that's how I felt. And then I watched the playoffs this year, and it really changed my opinion on Trey Young, which is why I'm putting him in this Tier 1 category along with Luka Doncic. So, Luka, not a lot has to be said. Almost 28 points per game last year, 8 rebounds, 8.6 assists. He shot almost 48% from the field, 35% from three, 73% from the free throw line. Those averages aren't necessarily going to blow you away, but the volume at which he had to repeatedly carry that offense at. It's honestly astounding how much offensive responsibility fell on his shoulders, how that team just constantly has to ask him to make a big, take a big shot, make a big shot, or create for somebody else every single trip down the floor. It seems like the ball has to touch his hands for that Dallas Mavericks offense to fully live up to its potential. And and to Luca's credit, to the Mavericks credit, they've had one of the best offenses, not even just in the league the last few years, but we're talking about their offenses have ranked amongst other top and other top offenses in league history historically. That is how good the Mavericks have been. And obviously we're gonna see this year how the team around Luca as well as Luca himself adapts to a new coach. Rick Carlisle is not with the Dallas Mavericks anymore. Now in comes Jason Kidd who has had mixed results trying to be a head coach elsewhere. We'll see if his point guard acumen with him being the great figure that he was in the league when he played, we'll see if some of that point guard to point guard philosophy translates over and we'll see ultimately how Luca is able to handle that and, and run this team with, you would think at least somewhat, of a new offense. I'll be really interested to see what happens with the Dallas Mavericks this year, but the sky's the limit for Luka. I, I fully expect him to win an MVP at some point. I know that he's a very popular betting favorite to do it this year, just like he was last year. A lot of people thought that he would take an even bigger leap last year than he did, but I mean, you, you, you obviously you expect him to average over 30 points per game, if not this coming year, definitely within the next few years. It would not shock me if he is another guy who can average a triple-double. He can average a triple-double over the course of multiple seasons, similar to how Russell Westbrook's done. And I know there are two different kinds of players, but Luka is, Luka is that special. 
He doesn't necessarily hunt for rebounds. He's generally just in a really good position, or he's very aware of what shot is going up and when, and he's able to get himself in spots to cross some of those longer rebounds off those three-point misses. Obviously, he's an adept playmaker. He's one of the best passers that we have in the game, and he can score from quite literally anywhere on the court. I mean, his synergy shot profile is very diverse. When we talk about he was in the 80th percentile in isolations, 83rd percentile scoring out of pick-and-roll sets as the ball handler, 84th percentile on post-ups. He really likes finding the mismatch in the post. If he has a smaller guard on him, if he gets the switch, the matchup that he likes, he obviously has a multitude of moves that he can go to around the basket. Um, and then also, again, when you factor in the playmaking, 74th percentile in isolations, including passes, 87th percentile pick and rolls, including passes, and 76th percentile post-ups, including passes. There quite literally is not a spot on the floor where he doesn't have the recognition, the awareness, and the court vision to be able to get the ball to where it needs to go if he's not able to convert on a play himself. So Luca is one of the top-tier playmakers, period, that we have in the NBA today, and I fully expect him to, like I said, win an MVP award, if not this coming year, definitely at some point, maybe multiple MVP awards in his career. And then, not that I would definitely make a bet gun to my head as Trey Young going to win an MVP award at some point in his career, but he is that caliber of player. And again, obviously, I'm not throwing just anybody in that top tier when, when i mean mvp caliber player when i say that i i really do mean it and that that also doesn't mean that i'm projecting every single person i put in tier one to win an mvp award but obviously there there's only one mvp award to be won per year so not everybody can win it but what i'm saying is that they are that caliber of player they are that franchise changing star they can put a team on their back and carry them to wins that you wouldn't necessarily expect that team to pull off. And that really was the definition of what Trey Young did for the Atlanta Hawks last year. I don't think much of anybody saw them making the run to the Eastern Conference Finals. Not not just the playoff, not just winning the first round in the playoffs, but actually getting to the Conference Finals, winning two series, beating the top seed philadelphia 76ers and and obviously that is its own separate topic that's its own discussion for another day i've i've certainly gone into some of that discussion on this podcast before about how that series broke down why it unfolded the way that it did but obviously you come back to what trey young meant to the atlanta hawks what he did for that team it was absolutely remarkable watching him on display and his numbers while his scoring took a little bit of a back seat Last year, 25 points per game. He still had 9.4 assists per game. He still shot the ball relatively well from the field and from deep. It, it, it's, it's crazy how a point guard of his stature can have such command over an NBA game that has trended so much towards having plus size at every single position on the floor, and you still see that size isn't always quite everything. And I know that Trey Young is a little speedster. He's able to certainly, between his handle being one of the best in the game and his speed, he's able to navigate to places on the court wherever he needs to be to make a play. He's able to get to those spots, and that's such an important part of it. But he's he, he's not six feet. I'd I'd probably venture to say 
that he he really looks like he's like 5'11", and I haven't stood next to him on a basketball court. Some of the measurements come in. I think a lot of the measurements point him to be a, a little bit bigger than I would give him credit for, but regardless of what he definitely measures in at, even factoring out the height, he's not a very bulky guard. He doesn't have a lot of muscle on him. He's definitely improved his body since he's come into the NBA. He's improved his strength base. He's, he's been able to withstand more contact, um, especially last year. He did stay healthy, which is awesome to see. But he does draw a lot of fouls. He looks for a lot of contact, and, and that's a good thing because when you look at some of these guys, I mean, we'll take Luca and Trey right here. We're talking about two excellent scores in the NBA, um, almost 28 points per game and 25 points per game. What's a thing they have in common? Besides just having the ability to pull up from deep, score around the basket, they both have floaters and, and runners that they can go to. They get to the free throw line in bunches. Luca last year, 7.1 free throw attempts per game. Trey, 8.7 free throw attempts per game. And they both convert at, at a decent rate. Obviously, Luca in the playoffs has been pretty, pretty bad, but his... His season average, 73% from the line. He can improve upon that, but that's not absolutely terrible. And then Trey being at about 89% from the free throw line, being able to make nine out of every 10 free throws roughly, that's going to help your scoring immensely. And, and that's such an important point that we try and hammer home, and it's a reason why you saw so many draft analysts this past year when we talk about 2021. Guys like Cam Thomas and, and Sharif Cooper, the reason why guys from draft Twitter or other scouts or, or draft analysts, the people who were in on those guys, a big reason was because they showed craft in finding ways to not only score in bunches from other areas of the floor, but in particular draw fouls at really high rates for freshmen and get to the free throw line and then be able to convert on those shots. It just really ups your, your scoring totals. But so those two guys... I have in an MVP tier one, a class of their own. Tier two, it's really interesting. The first guy that I have on my sheet here is DeAndre Ayton. That DeAndre Ayton was the number one overall pick. Luca was the third overall pick, and Trey was the fifth overall pick. Both of them obviously involved in that infamous trade where they essentially swapped teams. But DeAndre Ayton was the number one overall pick. I do not have him in a tier one, and that's okay. That's perfectly fine because what he is, the the dominant physical force around the basket that he proved to be in the playoffs, how he doesn't necessarily have an outside game yet, right? He he his jump shot, his jump shooting statistics across the board, and you can even go to a lot of the synergy numbers on his jump shot. They they are abysmal. He hasn't proven that he can hit outside shots even from the mid-range even from like the elbows for example he hasn't proven that he can knock down those shots on a consistent basis let alone stretch that shot out to the three-point line but last year 14 14.4 points 10 and a half rebounds um shot 63 percent from the field he converts on offense at an incredibly high level when he's asked to do much more simple things, when he's asked to be a role man, a, a diver to the basket, a, a, a vertical threat in transition. When, when DeAndre Ayton this season was able to simplify his game with Chris Paul at the helm as the point guard, it opened up so many doors for, for that Phoenix offense. And he gained so much confidence in, in doing the simple things and using his size and his incredible athleticism to his advantage that 
Phoenix was able to trust him in bigger moments and go to him when plays broke down. And and this is, I talked about this at length multiple times on this podcast, but so many times the reason why Phoenix was able to come away up big in some of those playoff games was because they didn't just settle for the hard jump shot. They didn't just settle for the three-point shot that was contested, that was easily contested by the defense. If a play broke down and the right shot wasn't there, Chris Paul or Devin Booker, or even Mikhail Bridges, to, to an extent, had no problem dumping the ball off to DeAndre Aiden to give him an easy look inside where he could either draw a foul or obviously finish around the basket and put two points up on the board. And it's something that I've said that three is greater than two, but two is greater than zero. And if you have an option like DeAndre Aiden where you can easily dump the ball down to him and he's able to convert and put points on the board, a lot of analytics guys want the shooter to shoot the ball. They want to see that ball go in from three because it's an extra point on the board as opposed to the easy deuce. But don't walk away with nothing. Don't leave too many trips down the floor on the table. Just don't do it. And when Phoenix played with that mentality, they played really well. When they went away from that, they ended up losing some games. And I still think it's a big reason why they didn't have the championship success that I think that team ultimately thought it could have when they got as far as the Western Conference Finals and then they got into the NBA Finals. But that that's neither here nor there. The bottom line is that I view DeAndre Ayton as an important building block for the Phoenix Suns. They, he has not signed a, a max level extension yet. I fully expect him to. There's no reason why he shouldn't be signing a max extension. It's not going to be the same dollar amount um, at least I don't envision it being the same dollar amount as Luca or Trey Young. I could be wrong about that. Maybe it is. Those guys have certainly earned every single penny that they've got. But for a big man who offers so much defensive versatility, who has worked to improve on his defense by leaps and bounds since he came into the NBA, everything he gives you from a finishing standpoint, he was in the 94th percentile last year in terms of total offense, 92nd percentile as a role man. 82nd percentile on putbacks, 88th percentile on transition scoring. I understand that, you know, Aiden isn't reinventing the wheel by operating within some of those play types, but can you find a role where you can excel in at an exceptional level? Can you maintain that consistency within that role? He answered yes to both of those questions last year, and, and Aiden is, he was the number one pick at that time. When I was working on this draft class, I was I was working with the private firm EV Hoops that, that I lent my services to for, for that year. I had him number one overall on the board. I had Luca number two. And I probably should have had that flip-flop, but we all we all learn from our mistakes. And Aiden still is a player that did not deserve a lot of the harsh criticism that he got when he came out in his rookie year. He didn't necessarily live up to everyone's expectations, but it's funny what can happen when you give a player, especially a big man, enough time to develop and carve out their own niche, their own role within an offense. They they find a level of comfort defensively. And then when you put both of those impacts together, it's amazing what kind of player you can have when you just give a guy enough time to reflect on how he can best help the team. And then you find a coaching staff and you put players around him who are willing to encourage him and 
help him excel at what he does well and not necessarily asking him to do too much. And speaking of that, that brings us to another Tier 2 guy I have is Jaron Jackson Jr., forward for the Memphis Grizzlies. One of the most intriguing players that we have in the NBA, somebody his size, 6'11", moves so fluidly for a big man his size as some of the best footwork out of certainly any big man in, in, in this class, but arguably even in the NBA, he is as slippery as they come for somebody his size. It's, it's speaking of using the word slippery, I mean, the guy I have under him, I'll get to in a second, Shea Gilgis Alexander. It's like Jaron Jackson Jr. In, in some ways is sort of like the, the, the big man version of, of Shea. When, when I use the word slippery, they're, slippery they're, they're constantly using their feet they're, they're utilizing a little bit of their handle craft, but really mainly their feet, their, their understanding of angles, their ability to contort their bodies, obviously the length that they both possess. They're able to finish at different angles around the basket than some other players might be able to, but just having the knowledge and the ability to get to those angles using some of their exceptional footwork and then being able to finish, that's some special stuff that we're talking about. There are not many big men who are as coordinated at, at Jaron Jackson's size as he is it's really special stuff that we get to watch obviously some of the main concerns with jaron have been that he has the size and the length to play the center position him being the stretch big man that he is you would love for him to be able to play that five so that they can spread the floor at every single position let john moran have a free lane to the basket literally whenever he wants even though jaron jackson generally spreads spreads the floor for for ja anyways they need to play a more traditional big next to Jaron because he can be bodied on the low block. He gives up way too many fouls. He does not rebound well on the defensive end. He, he's actually not a, a bad rebounder on the offensive end. His length and his timing going up for the ball allows him to corral a bunch of offensive rebounds, and then he is able to generally finish those shots or, or draw a foul. So I, I like Jaron Jackson's instincts and rebounding ability offensive end but the defensive end he gets boxed out way too much um he he's not necessarily quick to get to those spots i don't necessarily see him fighting with the same level of tenacity as some of the other better defensive rebounders in the nba he certainly needs to improve on that aspect and he needs to be much more of a consistent presence going up against some of those other big men not getting bullied down low in the post i think jaron jackson jr's best future his best outcome would be for him to be a consistent five man, but I don't know if that's going to happen. It's why that, you know, they've had Jonas Valanciunas there for so long now in, in engaging with a deal with New Orleans, moving some contracts around. They they still have Steven Adams. He is in the fold. He's he's expected to start next to Jaron Jackson. And then obviously some of the health concerns as well have been outlined. It's something that Jacob Birkenshaw and the overstated NBA show, that podcast that went up over the last few weeks when we talked about best young cores in the NBA. And Brett and I were talking about how we would give Jaron Jackson Jr. a max contract because it's the Memphis market. You aren't exactly luring a lot of big-name free agents in. At the same time, just given some positional concerns as well as his health, those are two major factors at play as to not not that you're not going to pay Jaron Jackson Jr., but just is he definitely deserving of a max contract? I think there's too much talent there. To, to not pay the man, I would absolutely max him out, give him the most amount of money that I could, because at his size, again, with his athletic ability, his his footwork, 
his awareness, his ability to navigate wherever he wants to on the floor, his shooting ability at his size. He was one of the best three-point shooting threats in, in his last fully healthy or close to fully healthy season in the NBA. Um, so that jump shot's not going anywhere. He is going to continue to be a really good catch-and-shoot threat in the league, and I fully expect Memphis to do what is right to pay him, and he is going to be one of those long-term building blocks with John Morant for the future. So they have two guys. The question is, can they get the third guy to ultimately get that team over the hump and really put them in championship contention? So two more Tier 2 guys. I already mentioned one of them, Shea Gilgis-Alexander. I mean, what... What can't this man do? His his profile is insane. Twenty almost twenty-four points per game, almost five rebounds a game, six assists per game, shot almost fifty-one percent from the field, almost forty-two percent from three-point range, almost eighty-one percent from the free throw line, a twenty-one point six PER and a sixty-two point three true shooting percentage for a guard. 80th percentile in terms of total offense, 94th percentile in terms of scoring out of pick and roll sets, 74th percentile on spot ups, 97th percentile off screens. His shot profile, then when you factor in his ability to convert within offensive sets, including passes, where he ranks as far as shooting the basketball, 84th percentile in terms of jumpers, 83rd percentile finishing around the basket, 86th percentile in catch and shoot looks, 92nd percentile in terms of jump shots off the dribble. Really his only weakness, and I've already seen plenty of videos on him working on this this summer, which is very encouraging. I hope it's not like the Ben Simmons workout videos. We we actually see some of this come to fruition in NBA games. He really doesn't have like a floater or a, a really nice quote unquote in between game, like like within that like five to ten feet around the basket. He struggles finishing in that area a little bit, but if that's something he knows is a weakness and that's something he's working on, I mean that's that's really the last possible ingredient to him being what I feel is one of the most complete scoring guards in the entire NBA. He really doesn't have any holes in his scoring attack. He he is the definition. I, I know the, the words three-level scorer are thrown around, are thrown around a lot in, in NBA circles and draft circles, but he quite literally is the living definition of that phrase. Um. Obviously, he needs to continue to prove that he can be more of a point guard or a true combo guard, somebody who is very, very, very comfortable making plays for others and assuming those lead guard duties, not necessarily just playing off the ball or kind of being like a secondary creator. He needs to continue to prove that he can be the primary creator for that team at a high level. And then I've mentioned this in other podcasts. I think I mentioned this um definitely with with some of the other guys from the overstated before but he he needs to be better defensively there there's no excuse why him being a 66 guard with length should have so many problems defending on the perimeter or at the very least not living up to his potential by some of the statistics and again i know that defensive statistics aren't the be all end all indicators for whether a player is a good defender or not obviously those statistics put a whole lot of emphasis into what the team is doing around him. We don't necessarily have the the best one-off numbers to quantify defensive impact just yet. Hopefully those metrics are um, invented one day, but he was only in the 24th percentile last year in terms of total defense, and he struggled 
in in quite a few areas registering um around average and and below average or even worse than that so she needs to be a much more impactful defender especially at the point of attack and then yeah that that little in between game that i outlined he definitely needs to improve his consistency from there but other than that i mean he he is he is an all-star caliber player he he is a max contract caliber player Shea Gilgis Alexander is one of the best young bright spots in the entire NBA, not just for the Oklahoma City Thunder. He should not have been involved in in trade rumors. And in my opinion, I know that Sam Presti is always on the lookout for the best package. He's always looking to stockpile assets that he can swing into a bigger trade. But if I'm Sam Presti, I'm keeping I'm keeping Shea Gilgis Alexander for for the long term. Kudos to him for getting him in the Paul George trade with the Clippers getting Shea Gilgis-Alexander sent over. SGA is a special, special talent at the guard spot. And then last in the Tier 2, we have Michael Porter Jr., Denver Nuggets forward. Listen, by this time next year, he could have an argument as a Tier 1 guy. He is that special of a scorer, and, and it really comes down to his shot profile, his his synergy profile as well. If you thought... Some of the numbers I read off for Shea Gilgis-Alexander were impressive. It really comes back to how efficient Michael Porter Jr. is from quite literally everywhere on the floor. 19 points per game, 7.3 rebounds per game. Really sneaky good rebounder um, on both ends of the floor. Definitely attacks the glass really well. But 54% from the field, 44.5% from three on 6.33% three-point attempts per game that that's as many three-point attempts per game as Trey Young by the way um and then 79% from the free throw line I expect that number to come up a little bit but a 20.6 PER 66.3 true shooting percentage here's where it gets off the rails folks 98th percentile in terms of total offense 83rd percentile scoring out of isolations 98th percentile scoring out of pick and roll sets as the ball handler yeah 98th percentile you heard that right 93rd percentile Scoring out of spot up, 63rd off screens, 86th off handoffs, 67th off cuts, 70th off putbacks, and 91st um, scoring in transition, 96th percentile scoring off of all jump shots, hitting all jump shots at a 46% clip. That is that is ahead of anybody else that we can talk about today. He finishes well around the basket. He's obviously a catch and shoot threat. He can make a ton of jump shots off the dribble. Really what he doesn't have is like a post-up game. And honestly, I don't know how much you want Michael Porter Jr. posting up anyways, given that he is a shot-making machine from everywhere else on the floor, particularly from the perimeter. You want him spacing the floor and creating looks from outside because, listen, that efficient of a shooter, when, when, when I talked earlier about three's greater than two, but two's greater than none, well, the two great, two's greater than none portion doesn't necessarily always apply to Michael Porter Jr. or or a sniper of his magnitude when we're talking about how efficient he is from behind the three-point line, the, the variety of shots that he can hit from there. It is astounding how well-rounded of a scorer he is now. Some other people point to his arsenal and they say, well, he's not an elite ball handler. He's not somebody who can can dribble the air out of the ball a little bit and kind of go up and create his own look effectively. But then you look at some other clips that some people will post on social media, and you'll see that he doesn't get a lot of separation on some of those pull-up jumpers, but he's so big at 6'10", he's so long, his his arc, his release point on his shot is is way above his head. 
Like no nobody is blocking that shot. Nobody is blocking Michael Porter Jr. shot. And when when you're somebody who is so comfortable shooting at his size, his length, with his release point, he's a very special exception to the rule where he does not need to be able to create elite space for himself on some of those shots at, at, at all times. Porter Jr. can get away with some of that a little bit. So he is one of those very special offensive talents. And then quietly last year was, was not a dumpster fire defensively either. He's he's really been nagged in terms of improving his off-ball awareness on defense, um, being somebody who can at least hold his own and be close to average defensively and not be somebody who can just be picked apart by opposing offenses. I mean, you saw at some points during the bubble that the Nuggets would struggle on the court at times. Not that Porter Jr. couldn't make enough shots to warrant his playing time, but you would just see um, teams go at him time and time again, just constantly attacking him, putting him in different pick-and-roll situations, getting him involved in a bunch of screens, making him work off of those screens and kind of figure out where he is and where he needs to be on the court. The more the more that those teams made Michael Porter Jr. think about what he needed to be doing on defense and where he needed to be, the worse the results were for the Denver Nuggets. And I think that MPJ definitely took steps last year in terms of improving his overall awareness, leveraging his size a little bit more to his advantage, and we'll see if he keeps taking steps forward on the defensive end. That's really the 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 only real thing I can see holding him back. But yeah, if he keeps improving offensively, if he keeps canning more shots on the efficiencies that he's shown that he can hit them at already, and he keeps improving the scoring averages, they go up and up and up and up and up. I mean, yeah, he could be he could find himself in a, in, in a tier one. I I will not rule out Michael Porter Jr. being amongst. The, the top three players in, in this draft class. I absolutely will not rule that out. I mean, he only took he only took 13.4 field goal attempts last year total. Um, he, he's not up to the, the 18 or the 21 that Trey Young and Luka Doncic were, were around respectively. So he will definitely have a much bigger role this year, especially with Jamal Murray being out for what, what's probably going to be the majority of the year. I think the last rumblings or that Murray can probably come back sometime in either March or April as we get closer to the playoff push. But you, you, you figure that MPJ is definitely going to be the second option right behind Jokic in that Denver offense, and then Aaron Gordon will, will be the third option. So I'm really excited to see what Michael Porter Jr. can do offensively and in, in what would expected to be a bigger role. So then we have our Tier 3 guys. I spend a lot of time talking about some of these tier three guys. I'll, I'll try and move through these guys at a brisker pace than I have in, in some of the other podcasts, but I'll start with Colin Sexton, Cleveland Cavaliers guard. Was involved in a bunch of trade rumors this offseason when, when Cleveland had a higher pick. Everybody wondered, did they want to take somebody like Evan Mobley? Were they looking to take another guard? Was Jalen Suggs possibly on the table? If they take another guard, who's the odd man out? Does the team believe in Garland? Do they think that Colin Sexton is a fit for the team? Do they think he's a fit for the locker room? There were so many rumors swirling around Sexton's name in the offseason, but his production on the court cannot be denied, and, and, and that's why I value Colin Sexton probably a lot more than other people, but 24 points per game last year at his size. 
like what, like a 6'1 guard, 48% shooting from the field, 37% from three-point range, 81.5% from the free-throw line. I know that um, Tim Bontemps was on the jump. I, I believe it was later in the week. Last week, we're recording this on Monday, September 20th. I think when, when, when Bontemps said that, or maybe it was Tim McMahon, well, one of those two, one of the two ESPN writers, they, they both do excellent work, but one of them said that uh, ideally... Sexton's role should be kind of like a Lou Williams type role off the bench, a six man type role, because he's not he's not a true point guard. Well, not a, not more of a traditional point guard, anyways. Um, his, his role as a combo guard is is iffy at best because he's not always the best decision maker and playmaker with the basketball in his hands. He looks to score. He doesn't have a mid range game. He's generally either canning these long shots or he's finding ways to to get around the get around to the basket draw a foul, get to the free throw line. But when you look at guys who are first or second options in the NBA, right? Generally, we're talking about three-level scorers, and they absolutely have some kind of reliable mid-range game. Or in the case of like a big man, like they are so capable of finishing in multiple different ways around the basket. Bottom line is, they have an incredibly, incredibly reliable shot package from, we'll call it two-point range, to be able to deliver in some of the more higher-pressure situations later in some of these games. And you don't necessarily see that bear out with Colin Sexton. He's only an average finisher around the basket. Again, when we factor in some of the playmaking and some of those play types isolations, um, pick and rolls. He's not the most adept playmaker out of those scenarios. He is very much a score first, bull in a china shop kind of guard. But at the same time, while playing him and Garland together might not be the answer, I think you can probably find a bigger guard to go next to Sexton who can handle more of the playmaking responsibilities and, and, and let Colin kind of focus on more of what he wants to do. I think a lot of people would take Garland over Sexton. I'm actually in the rare camp that I would take. I would take Sexton over Garland. Um, now, that stance can be rescinded if some of the off-the-court or locker room rumors I've heard about Sexton are true, that he doesn't always play nicely with teammates. Some of his intensity does boil over into certain situations in the locker room. I don't like hearing any of that stuff, but just from a pure on-court production standpoint, few guards at his size can score as prolifically from the field and as efficient as efficiently in, in multiple spots as Sexton. Just because he doesn't have a mid-range game, he's not a reliable pull-up shooter, he's still a really effective catch-and-shoot shooter from three-point range, and he can get to the basket, and then he can convert to the free-throw line when he's able to draw the foul. So I value Colin Sexton's offensive game. I, I think that he still has a bright future in this league, and I definitely see him. I don't see him as a six-man. I see him as more of your your guaranteed starter, and I think he can be on a really good team. Mikhail Bridges. For the Phoenix Suns, just watched him as well as DeAndre Ayton in the NBA Finals last year. Played a really integral role in terms of helping that team quote-unquote overachieve, as some might say. But listen listen to Mikel Bridges' synergy stats 
apart from just where he ranked in terms of raw numbers. So 13 and a half points per game, four rebounds, two assists. Won't blow you away, but 54% from the field, 42.5% from three, 84% from the free throw line, 66.7 true shooting percentage and synergy percentiles. Um, get, get even crazier, folks. And keep in mind, I'm not... I'm not as blown away with these as I am for somebody like a Michael Porter Jr., for example, because Porter Jr., um, he, he took four more shots per game last year. He's going to take exponentially more shots per game than, than Bridges this year. He might actually double the amount of field goal attempts. I, I would expect Bridges, given the year he had, he'll probably go up to, to like 11 or 12 field goal attempts per game. I would expect Porter Jr. to be averaging 20-plus field goal attempts per game next year at this point, just just given what that offense is going to need him to do. Um, so I'm not as blown away because it's not on as high a volume, but the volume that he was given, holy cow, is he efficient. 98th percentile in terms of total offense, 88th percentile in terms of isolation offense, 80, 82nd percentile scoring out of pick and rolls, 83rd percentile in spot-ups, 81st off screens, 84th off cuts, 100th on, on putbacks. Anytime he got an offensive rebound, that means that that team was walking away with points. 92nd percentile scoring out of transition, 92nd percentile in terms of jump shots, 90th percentile finishing around the basket, 82nd catch and shoot, 79th taking jump shots off the dribble. And by the way, when we look at some of those um, jump shot mechanics, particularly anything he's doing off the dribble where he ranks from a spot-up perspective. That was, a, that was a bigger question for for him, for some people, when, when Bridges came out of, of college, out of Villanova. Can, can he be one of those guys who can create off the dribble and make something happen? What was, was his mid-range jump shot as good as it looks sometimes at Villanova with those shots that he was going to be able to convert at a reliable rate in the NBA. And I think at this point, all those questions have been answered that yes, the, the mid range jump shot was for real. He is an efficient scorer. He's a smart scorer. He chooses his spots wisely. I mean, we can look at some of the other players ahead of him and other than Shea Gilgis Alexander, I can't say that um, every single one of those other guys are, are always taking advised shots by the book almost every single time they're taking a shot uh, of any kind from anywhere on the floor. Like Mikhail Bridges is always taking the best advice shot on the floor. And it's why that he's converted at such a high rate. And he's had such success in the NBA. And then obviously you factor in everything he does on the defensive end of the floor. People wanted to put him on um, like very high honors, very high praise in terms of all NBA defense last year. He's definitely going to be an all NBA level defensive stopper throughout his entire NBA career. I it would not shock me at one point if he was in consideration for a defensive player of the year. I don't know if he's going to ever put up the the counting statistics, the averages for some of those categories where, where he definitely earns himself a spot as number one on that ballot. But can he be on like the top three of a defensive player of the year ballot? Yeah, I think he can actually get there. Um, Mikhail Bridges is a damn good basketball player, one of the most valuable wings that any NBA team can have on its roster nowadays. And I keep expecting nothing but big things for Mr. Bridges. He's one of those guys, and we'll talk about somebody like him, somebody like Miles Bridges, who I'll talk about next, um, Kevin Herter, who I'll get to a little bit later on. It's, it'll be really interesting to see what kind of contracts some of these guys get, because if Mikhail Bridges was on the open market, for example, there's been a lot of executives, a lot of, 
um, writers who who have come out and said that like yeah, Bridges will would probably get twenty plus million a year on an open market, and I can't I can't necessarily fully disagree with them because Mikael Bridges is such a valuable player to have in today's NBA, and a, a wing with length who can defend multiple positions and convert from multiple different spots on the floor. His role isn't pigeonholed into one specific thing. He can do a variety of things on the floor. You're not sacrificing anything as a team to have him out there for 32 to 36 minutes a night. So when we put his contract case in that perspective, it's tough to argue against him getting every single penny that, that he may very well be worth. So I'll be really interested to see what, what his contract ends up being. Miles Bridges, Charlotte Hornets forward, 12.7 points per game last year, six rebounds, two assists. He's not the same type of player that we originally thought he would be when he first got to Michigan State as a freshman. He stayed for his sophomore season he didn't necessarily improve during his sophomore season. That's why he wasn't a higher lottery pick than he was. He was picked number 12 to the Charlotte Hornets. But he's another one of those guys, very explosive offensive finisher, one of the best vertical lob threats that we have um, at any position in the game nowadays, to be honest. Shot 50% from the field last year, 40% from three, almost 87% from the free throw line. Those are those are big time, big time numbers. When you factor in that he was basically on the same shot diet that Mikael Bridges was last year, I mean, the only the only thing to me that really separates Miles Bridges, at least in my opinion, and it's really funny because the synergy percentiles wouldn't tell you that this would be an issue. I still don't trust his pull up, his pull up jumper um in, in big moments i don't fully trust his shot creation ability which is ironic because he was in the 90, 94th percentile last year in terms of all jump shots off the dribble 82nd percentile in terms of all jump shots overall i'm still concerned about it i don't think he's a big time level creator i think he's much better off when he's set up by somebody else when when they get him running out in transition i would also like to see him improve speaking of transition scoring when, when he does fill that lane all the way out wide when he sprints to the corner i want to see him knock down more of those corner catch and shoot looks um he, he rated out in the 56 percentile in terms of catch and shooting overall 37.2 percent on those shots i would like to see those numbers come up a little bit if he can be a much better set shot threat that would also only help his scoring averages. I yeah, I just I I don't see the 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 creator upside for him. I don't see a lot of the same passing upside for him as I would see from Mikael Bridges, for example. I think Mikael's a much better decision maker with the ball in his hands when you flip the film on. But Miles is another one, another one of those three and D type wings, incredibly effective in his role. What what Miles does have over Mikael a little bit is that Miles is much better suited to step up and play up a position. Uh, Miles can be a small ball four when the Hornets throw out lineups with like PJ Washington at the five and Miles Bridges at the four. Those are really intriguing lineups that actually bear out well on both ends of the floor. So um, I, I give Miles that leg up. He's a little more of a versatile body on both ends of the floor. I think Mikhail Bridges is your much more reliable two way option, but Miles. 
still has a little bit of upside because of that in his own right. And and another player just like Mikhail, I'll be very intrigued to see what kind of contract Miles gets. Dante DiVincenzo. How many people would have him in a tier three? I, I don't know. It's it's honestly it's it's a toss-up. It's a close call. He's not as sure of a thing as some of these other guys that we can put in a tier three category, but he's proven for the Bucks. He plays incredible defense at the guard spot. He can be efficient enough offensively to hold his own. 42% from the field last year, um, almost 38% from three-point range, 72% from the free-throw line. You, you would like those numbers to come up, but 1.1 steals per game. He's, he's a menace defensively. And it's not always going to bear itself, bear itself out in the numbers, just like we talked about with some of the guys when I did the 2019 draft tiers revisit but Dante's a very competitive defender at the guard spot underrated athlete um for for his position the the combo guard type position he can make plays for others off the bounce he can attack a close out he can make the open three what's not to like about Dante's game and why can't he be a starter uh, matter of fact he pretty much has been one of the starters for for the Milwaukee Bucks and he's been a very reliable player for them he wasn't available for the playoffs due to injury but he will come back and he will be a valuable contributor for the Milwaukee Bucks moving forward. Shout out to Steve over at the the Overstated NBA show. I, I, I've always liked Dante DiVincenzo. I, I'm glad that, that he ended up becoming a higher pick than most people were, were pegging him for. I was, I was very early on in the Dante DiVincenzo bandwagon when I said that um, even before his breakout performances in the NCAA tournament, I, I really thought that he was worthy of a late first round selection. I thought he definitely should have been a first rounder. I thought that the Philadelphia 76ers should have done more to to target Dante. They should have come away with with one of those two Villanova guys, Dante or Mikhail or um even Jalen Brunson that I'll get to a little bit later in this podcast. So Philly should have come away with one of those guys, but nevertheless, um Dante has played a valuable role for the Milwaukee Bucks and and will continue to. I have him in a tier 3 as as one of those guaranteed type stars on a really good team. Kevin Herter, another guy who I seem to be a lot higher on much earlier in the process, in the draft process that year than, than consensus. And it all comes back to, I've probably told this story on, on this podcast. I know I've told it to, to certain people that I've had on the podcast. Um, but th- this comes back to when, when I was scouting live the last uh, that year and, and my boss asked me to go to uh, a Maryland Butler game, and he gave me a list of players who were valuable watching in, in that Maryland Butler game, guys like Bruno Fernando and and, and Keelan Martin. Um, but a name that he didn't give me was Kevin Herter, a 6'7 shooting guard who not only was a legitimate three-point threat, but the thing that stood out to me, like the first few possessions in the game, I remember watching him quite literally bring the ball up the floor for that Maryland offense. And he was initiating things for others and making really smart decisions with the ball, whipping passes left and right. And you don't always see very comfortable decision makers and passers at his size, him technically being a wing. I I texted my boss and I was like, I don't care about any of these other guys right now that you, you sent me here to see who the hell is Kevin Herter. And he's his stock really blew up in the draft last year because of a lot of the pre-draft stuff he did. And then at the combine shooting the basketball, 
He proved to be a marksman from outside. And I think those numbers can definitely stand to get better from an overall, from a season perspective. He only shot 36% from three on the year, which is, it's above league average, but I think that he can definitely push that 39 to 40% clip. And you saw evidence of that in the playoffs when there were games that he was the Atlanta Hawks most consistent offensive player that did happen. And I was concerned when the Hawks signed Bogdanovich and they brought in somebody like Gallinari because I, I, it it was a good thing that the Atlanta Hawks brought in vets to play with those younger guys, to help mentor them, to bring stability to some of those Atlanta Hawks lineups. But I also didn't want them affecting the development and the growth of some of the younger players. Kevin Herter was obviously at the forefront of that because when you bring in somebody like Bogdanovich, they're both usually going to play similar positions. And thank God during the playoffs, there's enough evidence there that, that Herter and Bogdanovich can play together. I, I love seeing those two play off of each other. And they brought a new dynamic to that Hawks offense because it was two very legitimate lights-out shooters next to Trey Young, who is also the, the perimeter dynamo that he is. John Collins has extended his range out reliably to the three-point line. Now you have such a prolific group of shooters around Clint Capella. It just opens up the entire floor for for the Trey Young-Clint Capella pick-and-roll lob game. And you can't necessarily help within that pick-and-roll too much because if you leave one of those guys open, Herter proved that he's a, he's a knockdown shooter when he's open. Bogdanovich, we knew coming into Atlanta, was a knockdown shooter when he was open. That's why the Atlanta Hawks were, were so dangerous. They weren't, they weren't gambling by playing somebody, not, not that they were necessarily available to play, but like a DeAndre Hunter or a Cam Reddish, for example, um, especially against the Sixers, they weren't having to gamble with somebody who, you, they, they can hit open three-point shots, but it's not as guaranteed when you're looking the way of like Bogdanovich or Herter, for example, they were able to play both of those guys on the floor at the same time. They weren't sacrificing anything defensively, which by the way, Kevin Herter rates out, um, rated out last year per synergy as in some ways, an even better defender than an offensive player, 70th percentile in terms of total defense, um, guarded the pick and roll really well, guarded spot ups really well, um, kept his presence felt around the basket, um, guarding off motion, running guys off screens, like, Kevin Herter was actually a pretty decent defender last year, and I expect him to keep improving in that aspect of his game as well, given his 6'7 six, six, size, his length, his anticipation, his awareness and understanding of the game on both ends of the floor. Yeah, Kevin, Kevin Herter, really valuable player for any NBA team to have. I'm glad that he's found success in Atlanta. I hope that he's there for the long term. I don't know if he's one of those guys that Atlanta could look to throw into a trade package and another big name pop up, for example, like, like the the Bradley Beal package that's been rumored. A lot of people have, have written about that. Guys like um, Chad, Chad Ford and David Thorpe, they've both put out packages for the Atlanta Hawks to maybe make a swing at Beal if he's available. And there's a there's a variety of players that could be thrown in that. Guys like a Herder or, or a Cam Reddish, for example. I think DeAndre Hunter is pretty safe. To, to remain on the Hawks at this point. But the young guys they drafted, like Jalen Johnson, Shreve Cooper, draft picks, that Atlanta probably has one of the best trade packages that can be put in the market. It's the question of, does the right star emerge for that team to become available? And, and man, if somebody like Brad Beal went, went to Atlanta, not to get too off topic, but like Trey Young, Bradley Beal, 
Bogdanovich, DeAndre Hunter, Clint Capella. You still have Collins. Like, like, holy hell, that that is that is an absurd amount of talent on one team. Shout out to to the Atlanta Hawks. Well done on on your rebuilding job that that you undertook. That that front office has done a remarkable job. Robert Williams, Time Lord, as he's affectionately called by the NBA Twitter community, the 27th pick in the draft. Yes, I do have him in a tier three because I think he can be a legitimate starter. I think he's going to get plenty of opportunities this year for for the Boston Celtics. Probably wouldn't have believed me if I told you that Time Lord had the highest PER on this sheet that's here in front of me in terms of this draft class. 25.7 PER as opposed to um, Luka Doncic's 25.3, slightly over it, but a 71.9 true shooting percentage. That all just comes back to the level of finisher that Robert Williams is around the basket. Doesn't have a very diverse offensive skill set, does not shoot jump shots, but if you get him rolling to the basket, if you get him diving off cuts, if you get him running in transition, being that vertical lob spacing threat, he, he's he's a borderline unstoppable finisher around the basket because of his size, his length, his leaping ability. He's a fantastic offensive player in his own right, albeit simplified, but still fantastic when it comes to his efficiency. And then defensively, obviously, he's a major threat protecting the rim. I don't know how very switchable of a defender he always is because I don't know how well he always recognizes those those situations. He was only in the 11th percentile in terms of defending spot-ups. He's not a good defender around the post. The good news is he does handle himself well in terms of defending in pick-and-roll sets and around the baskets. But yeah, he's not a very aware defender. He's not very good off the ball. He doesn't close out well to, to catch-and-shoot shots. So there are areas for him to actually work on defensively, which is really where if a lot of people were... If, I shouldn't say a lot of people. The general fan was trying to describe Robert Williams' game to you, it probably would be along the lines of he, he's better on defense than offense. I actually think that he's proven to be a much better, much better offensive player, albeit in a more limited role than, than he is defensively. He has a bunch of areas where he can continue to improve defensively, and I think Emei Udoka is, is going to do everything he can to get the most out of Robert Williams. I think Time Lord's going to get his opportunities this year in Boston. And as we all said on the top young cores podcast, like him, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, they make up a fantastic young core um, for, for Boston. And I can't wait to see what Robert Williams will, will continue to do in a Boston Celtics uniform. So we still have two guys I have left in my tier three. And then we have our tier four guys. That's it though, for tier three guys who were drafted in the first round, we have two second round players. Um, that the, the made it into this tier three here. Gary Trent Jr. would be the first. He was drafted 37th overall by the Portland Trailblazers, was sent off to Toronto in that Norman Powell trade, which I don't know if that's going to end up being the right move because I was a big fan of Gary Trent Jr.'s all the way going back to, to college because of what I saw him do in high school, being a, a three-level shot creator. He didn't always show dynamic creation ability from the mid-range or around the basket when he was in college at Duke. But I knew that some of that ability was there. It just had to come out. It hasn't come out consistently, 
in the NBA, he only shot 40.8% from the field, so close to 41%, but he is as lights out of a three-point shooter as we have on this list today. 38.5% from three-point range. He is one of the most complete pure shooters. Pure shooters, not pure scores, pure shooters we have in this draft class. 84th percentile off screens. 68th percentile on all jump shots, 87th percentile in terms of catch and shoot looks, 60th percentile in terms of jump shots off the dribble. So some of those percentiles aren't blowing you away in terms of they're up in like the high 80s and the 90s, but he's at the very least, he's he's pretty much good in the majority of areas that require a jump shot. If he could finish better around the basket, if he was a much more reliable attacker on closeouts, if he could do a little bit more off the dribble, if he wasn't just a black hole shooting the basketball, then maybe his value would be appreciated a little more by by NBA teams. But he's a competitive defender. He's a starting caliber shooter. His offensive game is still getting better. He's still young. I think he's going to end up being a, a starter for the Toronto Raptors. I think that that organization is going to value him. They did pay him. They did give him an extension. So that's great for, for Mr. Gary Trent. I, I expect him to continue to be an outside threat in, in Toronto for, for years to come. And then the last one I have in the Tier 3 would be Bruce Brown, the Brooklyn Nets guard who opened up a lot of eyes last year, myself included. I got to be honest, I was not the biggest fan of his when he was coming out of college. I saw him and another one of the guys who I'll talk about in this. Uh, I, I saw him and Lonnie Walker both play together on Miami, and when I saw them live in a, in a game out in Reading, Pennsylvania, Bruce Brown didn't, didn't blow me away. I, I saw a lot more positives with, with Lonnie Walker and some of the things I could project for him than I did Bruce Brown, but I underestimated, A, the tenacious rebounder that Bruce Brown is on, on the boards. He's one of the best rebounding guards that, that we have in the NBA, certainly at least for somebody his age. His ability to impact the game, finishing around the basket, playing defense, effectively scoring on offense, 81st percentile in terms of total offense. His ability to act as a role man, his ability to be as switchable defender as we have at the guard spot in the NBA. I mean, hell, the, the Nets were, were throwing him on like fours and fives at different points last year, and it was astounding how he does not let anybody back him down, even in the post. He is one of the strongest guards that we have pound for pound in the NBA holds his stance really well, does not bite on pump fakes, not easy to get around on the perimeter. Bruce Brown is as competitive of a basketball player as they come. He really fought tooth and nail for, for the role that he's earned now with the Nets. Didn't, didn't necessarily blow anybody away from the beginning when he was with the Pistons. Then obviously um, he did earn himself more minutes as time went on with the Pistons. Then he found himself in that trade, and, and he, he's now one of the most valuable members of the Brooklyn Nets, to be honest with you. They are going to rely upon him this year as they are in search for a title. They're going to rely on his effort level, his defensive tenacity, his ability to finish and convert easy looks when called upon. Bruce Brown's a really exciting role player, but I think that, especially now, I don't know if he's going to be in Brooklyn for forever, but if he's moved outside of Brooklyn and he's, He's not behind the logjam that is Kyrie Irving, James Harden, and Kevin Durant. I think he is a starting caliber player 
um, elsewhere in the league. That that's what makes him a tier three guy for me. Second rounder. I, I was I was blown away with Bruce Brown last year and how good he is. He is he is a special role player. So that moves us to tier four. We have Mr. Marvin Bagley leading off guys who I have in tier four. And some of you, I can already hear some people listening to this podcast going, what the hell? This guy has Marvin Bagley as a tier four guy, somebody who you don't see as a guaranteed starter in the league. Well, remember, the top end of that tier four can be the fifth guy in the starting lineup on a really good team. The fifth guy. Not one of those guys who you know where they're going to be taken on the playground or you know that they're going to be one of the first four players picked for a lineup, but he kind of just fits right into the back end of that starting unit. Unit Like, he's good enough to start, but he's not good enough to be relied upon. And listen, in, in spurts, he does look like that guy. He was the second overall pick in the draft for a reason. When, when he was coming out, I compared him... He was like the NBA's version of Silly Putty, right? You could kind of mold him into whatever type of player you wanted him to be. I saw him as more of a a pick-and-roll threat, kind of like an Amari Stoudemire, somebody who was a, a, a vertical threat around the basket off of, off of pick-and-roll action, somebody who could maybe pop out, hit the occasional jump shot to keep defenses honest, would obviously be a transition threat. Playing ideally more up in position than down, I mean, there were some people... Even even the Kings themselves, when they drafted him, they thought that he might be like a three-man, somebody who had enough of a handle and a jump shot to contend for a spot at like the three and, and play more exclusively out on the wing, be more of a creator from the perimeter than necessarily focus on scoring around the basket and, and, and taking, use of, taking use of his physical tools that way. And I, I did not see that kind of upside for, for Marvin Bagley. I thought he could have been a Mari Stoudemire 2.0, where regardless of how we feel, A... He's been injured pretty much his entire career in the NBA. He's had some points where he's healthy, but it seems like every single year he's running into some kind of injury where he's missing playing time, he's missing practice time, he's missing developmental time, and he just he doesn't doesn't feel like he's getting better. He averaged 14 points and seven rebounds last year, 50% from the field, 34% from three. That, that that's not bad. Those are good numbers for somebody his age. But it's the consistency can't stay on the floor. His game has become stagnant to an extent, not necessarily all of his fault because of the injuries, but the best ability is availability. If you can't, if you aren't reliable, if I can't count on you to be on the floor on a consistent basis, why, why am I definitely making sure you're one of the first to get paid? Why am I making sure that you're, you're a guaranteed first or fourth option in my starting lineup? Like, like why, why am I giving you any of those guarantees? At this point, Mar- Marvin Bagley, I don't know where his career is going to go from here. You, you obviously heard all the, all the rumors and the rumblings that, that Marvin's dad wanted him traded out of the organization. He wanted him traded somewhere else to, to kind of get a fresh start. I don't know how much longer Marvin Bagley is with, with the Sacramento Kings. I don't know what his role is going to look like coming back from another injury, but he he may very well be one of the best what-if stories in the NBA because he was, he was certainly an incredibly talented prospect coming out of Duke. I, I got to see him. I got to scout him live and in person. He was the fastest player I think I saw in that Duke pick game. The, that I went to. He was the best athlete, the quickest athlete on the floor 
at his size, at his 6'10 size. Not not the greatest wingspan, not a long player, but uh, a tall enough player and a competitive enough player, an instinctual rebounder. Certainly always had a nose for rebounding the basketball, and he could score from virtually any angle inside that he wanted to. I never thought his post-up game was necessarily going to translate in the NBA the same way that it did in college. It's translated a little bit. It's been mixed results in terms of his post-up game, but an athletic finisher, a legitimate role man, he can still have a role within the NBA. I think it just it is going to take a different team, and it's going to take the right coach to, to bring out the best of what Marvin Bagley has proven he can do, not necessarily asking him to develop too many new skills at this point. Although, we don't, we don't like to put any limits or ceilings on players over here either. Marvin Bagley is is still a really raw and awesome talent. We we will see if his career becomes more than, than what it has been uh, up to this point. It will be really interesting to monitor. Wendell Carter Jr. Another interesting big man that I was really high on during that draft process because I thought that the jump shot would extend He'd be a legitimate stretch big man. He would offer enough defensive versatility, be kind of like an Al Horford 2.0. He would bring his IQ and his playmaking characteristics, translate that over to the NBA. He would be a big man who could average three to four assists per game for you, kind of be a secondary hub for your offense, somebody who you could go to in the post if Defense is double teamed to me, make the right decision with the basketball. And then when you needed him to, he could spread the floor, step outside, knock down the occasional jump shot. And the majority of that optimistic projection has not bore out. It's a reason why he is no longer on Chicago Bulls, where he was drafted seventh overall. He's now in Orlando. Last year, averaged 11 points per game, eight rebounds per game, almost two assists per game. So not bad, good, not bad, but not great. 50% from the field, but only 29% from three-point range, 73% from the free-throw line. And then when you take a look at some of the other synergy percentiles, particularly where he ranked in post-ups, he was only in the sixth percentile in terms of post-ups, 18th percentile scoring as the role man in pick-and-roll actions, 20th percentile scoring in spot-ups. Really, the only two percentiles he really rated out well as on offense where he was in the 74th percentile on cuts, 71st percentile on putbacks off of offensive rebounds. So what Wendell Carter has proven he can do in the NBA is finish around the basket to a degree, rebound the ball on both ends of the floor, block shots when he's near the basket, and that's what he's consistently proven he can do in the NBA. And if he can do those things at a high enough level, then he justifies his tier four spot. He justifies being the fifth guy in a starting lineup. He justifies being a starter for an NBA team. But if he doesn't improve in those specific areas and and take those talents up another level or two, and he doesn't continue to to further expand his game and, and show a little more of the promise that we thought he had coming out of college, then... I mean, how much how much better could he end up being than somebody like a like like a Rob Williams, for example? Like, like like Robert Williams has a much more defined role. He doesn't technically have some of the other upside that Wendell Carter might bring to the table, but Robert Williams 
is also much more efficient at what he does than what Wendell Carter does that he's good at. So having a player who may have more of a specific role but is an outstanding talent in that role versus somebody who is not necessarily great in any one particular area, good in a few, but we don't know if he's going to become great in any of those other areas or even become good in some of the other areas that we were projecting him to get to that level at. Like, the, what kind of big man do you have? Why is he worth that high of a draft pick? And why is he worth a certain spot in your rotation? So those are some of the questions that I have about Wendell Carter Jr. And, and he might be a guy that I was also wrong on having having higher up on my draft board. I really expected better things from bigger and better things from Wendell Carter Jr. And that might still happen for him in Orlando, but who knows what direction that franchise goes. And they have a ton of young talent. They're going to be looking to mix and match all different kinds of lineups on the floor. They're going to look to see who they keep for the long term, who they end up moving for, for different assets or different pieces. I don't know if Wendell Carter Jr. is going to be in the long-term plans for, for the Orlando Magic. I don't know the answer to that question. Lonnie Walker. I'll just come out and say it, folks. My biggest disappointment from this draft class, and some of it's his own doing, there is a portion of it that is definitely, for whatever reason, he's just been in Pop's doghouse ever since he came into the NBA and, and joined the Spurs. But Lonnie has not lived up to the promise that I thought he could have. When you go back and you watch college tape on Lonnie Walker, you see the level of athlete that he is. You see the fluidity in his pull-up jump shot, his ability to hit open three-point shots, how lethal of a threat he was in transition. When you look at his game defensively, how utilizing his length and his lateral mobility, how he could literally lock up guys who were, who were equal in size to him or smaller, how dynamic of a perimeter defender he was in college. You put all of that together, and you're, you're talking about a potential star-level talent. There were some people in our in our office at our scouting firm who had Lonnie as like, like, like a top five type talent in the draft. And you could make a really compelling case in Lonnie Walker's favor, but it has not, it just has not worked out in the NBA. He has not been as efficient as we would have expected. 42% from the field, 35.5% from, from the three-point line, and 81.4% from the free-throw line. Those numbers are not bad, but only a 9.8 PER last year, 52.3 true shooting percentage, only in the 43rd percentile in terms of total offense, and in the 10th, per, 10th percentile in terms of total defense. He's, he's, he's the most heckle. He's just not a consistent basketball player on either end of the floor. I have these long pauses. I'm trying to put together the right words to, to say about Lonnie because it hurts that his game hasn't quite panned out how I saw that it would. He's also a local guy. He went to, I, I'm in Pennsylvania. I'm not that far from Philadelphia. He went to high school in Reading. It's, it's, Really nice and, and awesome to see local guys especially make it make it to the pros and you would hope that they do well, but yeah, it just has not been has not been a, a bang up time for Lonnie in the NBA. Consistency, like I've said, is, is the one key word that's really held him back. He'll come out, he'll have these like uh, seventeen or twenty point games on offense, he'll shoot it really efficiently, 
on the floor. He'll be a transition threat. He'll make some plays on defense. He'll look really good. He'll look like a starting caliber wing in the NBA. Somebody deserves much more playing time on the floor. And then Pop will give him more minutes the next night, and he'll go out there. He'll play like 28, 30 minutes in the next game and only have like four points on not that many shot attempts or not that efficient of shooting from the field. He'll he'll be a defensive liability. He won't quite be as aware defending off the ball as he needs to be. He isn't as attentive defending on the ball. He'll get in foul trouble. Like the, the inconsistencies to Lonnie's game are so wild. And I, I think time's really running out for him to put it together in a big way. I think if if he ends up sticking, it's absolutely... I, I have him in a tier four here because I still have... A little bit of faith left in Lonnie, but I might be ready to move him to to a tier five by this time next year. And if that wouldn't go well, then he becomes like a tier six borderline, like tier seven player. Maybe maybe he's out of the league. I I, I expect bigger things from Lonnie Walker. I hope that you know there there have been some names that have moved around in the San Antonio Spurs. Demar Derozan's no longer there. It's a little bit lighter of a log jam on the wing. But Keldon Johnson really took advantage of the opportunities that Lonnie Walker couldn't take advantage of. And and Keldon, as I outlined in the last podcast, has become a damn good basketball player on both ends of the floor. Lonnie's not there. Lonnie's not there. I don't know if he's going to get there. I'll keep him in Tier 4 for now. But he's he's one of those guys that's definitely waning in between tiers. Jalen Brunson. Dallas Mavericks guard. One of the best backup point guards in the NBA. One of the best spot starters in the NBA. About as efficient as they come for a backup player. 12.6 points per game off the bench last year. 3.4 rebounds, 3.5 assists, 52% from the field, 40% from three, almost 80% from the free throw line, 17.1 PER, 61.8 true shooting percentage for a small guard as him, 87th percentile in terms of total offense, it does not get better than Jalen Brunson scoring the basketball. He is he is a magician at times with the ball in his hand. His pick-and-roll craft is uncanny. His ability to get to where he wants to on the floor. He's a built guard. He's stocky. He doesn't let anybody push him around. He can even take similar-sized guards or, or a little bit bigger than himself. He can take guards like that into the post if they don't have the same... Um, strength combination of upper and lower body that he does. He can he can bully around guards a little bit. And then, obviously, how smart of a player he is. That was always evident on display at Villanova, the type of leader that he was at the point guard position for that national championship Villanova team. He played, I get it, he played with talent. He played with guys like Dante DiVincenzo. He played with guys like Mikhail Bridges. But, and listen, at the end of the day... Jalen Brunson made it happen. He was always the most efficient and best offensive player night in, night out for that team. He's already proven himself to be, like I said, one of the better spot starters in the NBA. The Dallas Mavericks have a legitimate backup point guard that they can go to for years. I, I, I'm not quite as sold on him being a starting level player at some point in his career than I might have been when he came out of college because when, when he does come in, not, not not that he can't be a really good spot starter, because I think he is a really good spot starter, but when he comes into the to a starting role, like there were games, for example, where the, the Mavericks had multiple injuries in their starting lineup, and they would bring in Jalen Brunson, and they would 
ask him to quite literally carry that offense. And he would have some standout games. He would get to like 30 points in a game, but it would be on horrible shooting numbers. He would not be efficient from the field. Um, I think when you put too much responsibility on his plate, he becomes turnover prone. He's not efficient shooting from the field. Um, he's not the biggest guard height-wise, so if you ask him to finish around the basket one too many times, you might not be able to pull that off consistently either. He's he's not a high-volume guy. Um, in a bench role, he, he took 9.2 shots per game last year. That's fine, but when you're asking somebody like a Jalen Brunson to take like 16, 17, 18 shots for your team, it's probably not going to work out to the results that you want it to. Jalen Brunson is a spot starter. He's a sixth man. He's a specialist in his own right in terms of being one of those legitimate backup traditional point guards who can lead second units and then come in and help out some of the guys in your first unit. That's the type of player that Jalen Brunson is, but but one of the best backup points or point guards in the league. Obviously, I'm going to have him on my tiers list here. He's a tier four guy for me. And speaking of guys who might trend in that direction, Devontae Graham, now with the New Orleans Pelicans, 15 points per game last year, only 37.7% shooting from the field, 37.5% from the three-point line, 84.2% from the free-throw line. Devontae Graham is one of the best pure shooters at like the point guard spot that we have in the NBA. The problem is, is that that's all he can do. He doesn't have a diverse offensive attack. You look up and down his statistical profile. You look at his synergy numbers. He is he is not good around the basket. He's not an adept finisher elsewhere on the court. He's not even the best mid-range player all the time. He is almost exclusively an outside shooter. He could be a playmaker. He can set guys up when he has the opportunity to. I wouldn't call him an excellent passer or even a great passer. He's a good passer, but not anything extraordinary or out of this world. Um, and yeah, he's predominantly an outside shooter. So, and, and then obviously at his size, I wouldn't expect him to be a defensive dynamo. Although it's it's really interesting. His his defensive statistical profile per synergy is exactly the opposite of what I would expect. Eighty fourth percentile in terms of. Total defense, 82nd percentile defending spot-ups, 99th percentile defending handoffs, 99th defending off screens, 63rd defending in isolation, 85th defending all jump shots, um, even the 89th percentile defending around the basket. I mean, he's a competitive defender. He's a really competitive young guard on both ends of the floor, but I just don't, I don't see him being good enough in other areas offensively and and I don't know how much I trust those defensive statistics to where I'm saying okay this guy's a full-time starter for for an NBA team yeah he had he had a breakout breakout rookie season but I don't see I don't see Devonte Graham being a long-term starting answer at the point guard spot we'll see if he is the long-term starter for this season with New Orleans Pelicans if he starts the season as a starter if he ends it as a starter he could be a really interesting option in that starting lineup, though, next to Zion, especially if they go the point Zion route. They're putting the ball in Zion's hands a lot more, and he's, he's um, driving to the basket. He's kicking it out to the open shooter. Devontae Graham can catch and shoot at a high level. So when, when the Pelicans talk about wanting to add more shooting depth around Zion, 
if they're putting the ball in Zion's hands more, I mean, arguably there, there's not a better option than having Devontae Graham in there next to him taking a lot of those jump shots. So I'll be I'll be interested to see how it works out, but I would much more put him in the category of sixth man spot starter, shooting specialist. That's that's where I ideally would label Devontae Graham. Mitchell Robinson, New York Knicks center. One of the best shot blockers that we have in the entire NBA. Somebody who attacks the boards on both ends of the floor with aggression. Another vertical lob spacer. But his offensive game, we've heard that the jump shot's coming for the last few years now. It has not come in the NBA games. He has not been efficient from the free throw line. I don't really see his offensive game ever expanding past what it is now. And I understand he was in the 89th percentile in terms of total offense, 90th percentile in terms of acting as a role man in different pick and roll sets. So he can finish around the basket in different ways, but he's not as good defensively as some of these other bigs. Because we, we've outlined over these last three podcasts, we've outlined a bunch of guys like Daniel Gafford, for example, like Robert Williams, the, these guys who are they're, they're rim running, vertical spacing, rim protecting big men but they offer more efficient value than somebody like Mitchell Robinson does on both ends of the floor. He was only in the 50th percentile in terms of total defense last year playing with the Knicks, a team that did rate out very well defensively. So you would think that being in the system that he was, given some of the personnel that he had around him, his defensive numbers would also excel to the level that we would expect, given how good of a shot blocker he is around the basket. But that did not bear itself out. He is not good defending away from the basket. He's not the most attentive defender or most attentive big man off the ball. His work in switches is definitely a mixed bag when you go back and study some of the film. So I'm not as in love with Mitchell Robinson as others. I think that he can be a starter in the NBA. Well, first of all, he already has been. But second of all, I think he can be. But he's that, he's that fifth guy in the starting lineup. When we talk about a higher end of projection within this tier four, that's what we're talking about. That he's... He's not counted on as a first or a fourth option. He's he's the he's your last line of defense in that starting lineup. He's the last guy in there, and that's the type of value he can provide. Or he can be a very valuable big man um, off the bench. If you go with more of an offensive-minded lineup, and you start a big who who's better offensively, or maybe he's like a stretch big who offers value that way, but he's not exactly. Um, the type of defender that Robinson can be at times, for example, protecting the rim, blocking shots. Maybe you, maybe you mix and match those two types of big men together. Um, but I think that the Knicks are very happy with what they've gotten out of Nerlens Noel. I think that Obi Toppin still has some room to grow into playing some small ball five. I don't know what all that means for, for Mitchell Robinson in the Knicks uniform. I don't know what that means for his future. And then finally in this tier four, DeAnthony Melton, Memphis Grizzlies guard, was the 46th overall pick in the draft. 9.1 points per game last year, three rebounds, two and a half assists. Interesting shot profile. He's excellent when he has the ball in his hands offensively, whether it's shooting from a ton of different spots on the floor, making plays for others. When you take the ball out of his hands and you make him more of an off-ball threat and you try to get him moving off the ball or or taking some cuts, trying to finish around the basket, or 
Um, he, he's not he's not an efficient player without the ball in his hands. It's almost exclusively he needs the ball in his hands to thrive and excel at what he does best. So I don't think he's a good enough player to always warrant having the ball in his hands at a starting lineup for like a really good team. But if you ask him to be like your sixth man, your lead guard off the bench, and he's in charge of making everything happen for like a second unit and primarily going up against second units, given how efficient and effective he's been against second units at this point to his career. Yeah, that's the type of role I envision for for DeAnthony Melton. And yeah, going up against bench players, they, they cannot stop him from three, 41% from three last year. When he does get to the free throw line, albeit not often, 80% from the free throw line. League average PER, 15.2, I guess technically slightly above 56.8. True shooting percentage. But yeah, good jump shooter overall. Good jump shooter off the catch. Really good jump shooter off the dribble. 89th percentile shooting off the dribble. Can create for others out of isolations as well as pick and rolls. But yeah, third percentile on cuts, ninth percentile on handoffs, eighth percentile running him off screens. Effectively, you're either playing him off the ball or you're not. And then defensively, he is a very competitive guard on that end of the floor as well. Can definitely give other players fits. 64th percentile in terms of total defense. That That's good for a guard. If you're above 60th for a guard, particularly someone with the size of who you would expect to be playing the point guard spot, that's a good, really good solid number to be at. So DeAnthony Melton definitely has outperformed his 46th overall pick draft stock at this point. I'm incredibly pleased with what Melton's become. I think he, he makes the Grizzlies a deeper team. He's another one of those really valuable role players that they have, guys who can definitely make their impacts felt. So that runs through tiers one through four. Um, just some standout names that I didn't have tiers one through four. Mo Bamba. I have no idea what Mo Bamba is going to be at this point in his career. Has not gotten many opportunities. Does he get more opportunities this year, being that that team is going to exclusively have their record in the dumpster? The Orlando Magic jumps to fire this year. I, I have no idea if Mo Bamba gets an expanded role, if he gets traded, if he gets an opportunity somewhere else. Having him in Tier 5 isn't necessarily a knock on who I think he is overall and what he could be because I don't think that the evaluation, I don't think we have a good evaluation on what Mobamba can be in the NBA yet, which is crazy to think because he's going into his, his fourth year in the league, but we just don't. So that's why I have him down here. Um, Troy Brown Jr. was just involved in, in, in a trade. He, he's now in Chicago. He'll be playing this year with the Chicago Bulls. He was the 15th overall pick. It'll be interesting to see if he carves out a role there. Um, Grayson Allen, also now with the Memphis Grizzlies, has also been an interesting guard for them off the bench. Shake Milton was the 54th overall pick in the draft. I have him as a Tier 5 guy. I really wanted him to be um, in, in a Tier 4. I thought that given his performance effectively two years ago, I thought that last year he was going to come on to the team in a big way. And he would have justified being in like a tier four role, but Doc Rivers did not trust him with big opportunities. He did not play a lot of minutes last year. He did not get a lot of shots last year. He had some nice moments in the playoffs. Um, but at, at this point, he is like a seventh to ninth guy in a lineup. He's a bench guy if that. I, I hope that he would get a little more opportunity this year than last year with Philadelphia because I still really like him as a shooter and as a shot maker. We'll, we'll see if that pans out. 
And then the last really interesting name I can I can mention would be Kevin Knox, the ninth overall pick to the New York Knicks, still on the New York Knicks. I don't really know what what, what Kevin Knox is, is going to be at this point. There's technically a blueprint for him being a valuable player in the NBA. 6'9 size on the wing, can shoot off the catch. It's just his creation ability, his off-the-dribble game, a lot of the scoring moves that we saw him able to perform at Kentucky have not panned out in the NBA. He's almost exclusively been a catch-and-shoot guy, and he hasn't even always been efficient doing that. He has not been good defensively. He's a guy, I have him in Tier 6 right now because of the circumstances. I mean, Kevin Kevin Knox could be out of the league if, if he really doesn't turn things around this year. He doesn't get the proper opportunity to turn himself around. And that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for coming with me on that journey to revisit the 2018 NBA draft and break everybody down into tiers. We have one more podcast left in this series. I will go back and I'll go through 2017 the same way as I've done 2020, 2019, and now 2018. Um, I have some NBA preview content. That will be coming out definitely within the next week, week and a half. I'll be recording some podcasts later this week with the Overstated NBA show. That's going to be really fun. I'm bringing back 30 questions for 30 NBA teams. I think we're all actually dividing up the questions this year, so I'm not having to come up with all 30 by myself, but I'm, I'm really excited to sit down with those guys and do more of a deep dive preview for the NBA season. I also got to get some award picks and I got to get stuff like that out there. And, and then we got to get rolling on, on 2022. And I, I couldn't be more excited for the start of a scouting cycle, not just because of the success that I'm expecting us to have over here at Draft Deeper, but again, continued relationship with the overstated NBA group. and. There's something else that, that's brewing in the pipeline at this point where we're so close to announcing something massive in the coming weeks here that that's going to be effective for this draft cycle and then here on out for incredible content in a variety of different mediums. But definitely keep on the lookout for, for a big announcement for myself as well as from some other esteemed content creators in this space. But stay tuned to this show. If you haven't subscribed already, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts, follow us on Twitter, at DraftDeeper, for all updates pertaining to this platform as well as any work we're doing with anybody else. And we're, we're almost there, folks. We're, we're about a month away, not too far off, only a few weeks away from, from training camp and preseason action. The basketball season is right around the corner, at least for as far as the NBA is concerned. November 9th is when the college season kicks off with the Champions Classic. I can't wait. I can't wait for all of you guys to join me on this journey this year with the 2022 NBA Draft and the 2021-22 NBA season. Thank you all for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. Mm-hmm.